Welcome to Zero Knowledge, a podcast where we explore the latest in blockchain technology and the decentralized web. The show is hosted by me, Anna, and me, Frederick. In this week's episode, I catch up with Georgios Konstantopoulos, James Prestwich, and Tarun Shitra. We talk about their takeaways from DevCon 5, what's on their mind, and how they feel about the explosion in zero-knowledge research. Before we start, we want to say thank you to this week's sponsor, Trail of Bits. Trail of Bits recently shared their review of this year's IACR crypto conference on the Trail of Bits blog. They highlighted some of the major themes of the conference, including the importance of getting basic cryptographic primitives right. As they reported, systems ranging from TLS servers and Bitcoin wallets to state-of-the-art secure multi-party computation protocols were broken when one small subcomponent was either chosen poorly or misused. The blog also highlighted the ascendance of cryptographic tools for privacy-preserving computation, such as zero-knowledge proofs, secure multi-party computation, and secure messaging systems. For more on their thoughts from the conference and what they see on the horizon in the industry, check out a link to their blog in the show notes. So thank you again, Trail of Bits. One last thing before we start, the Zero Knowledge Summit is coming up fast. It's happening on October 26th in San Francisco. It promises to be a day packed full of some of the best research in the zero knowledge space. If you happen to be in the Bay Area for San Francisco Blockchain Week and want to check it out, please do apply. I'll share the link in the show notes. I hope to see you there. And now here's my conversation with Tarun, James, and Georgios. What did you just say? It's the first lines from a poem that are also the alphabet. Oh, wow. Cool. Um, <laughs> explodes. So I'm sitting with James, Georgios, and Tarun on this last day of DevCon. Welcome to the show, guys. Hi. It's good to be here. Nice to be back. I want to start off with James and Tarun. You've both been on the show before. I'll actually put links to the shows that you guys were on in the show notes, so anyone can find out what you've been working on, maybe in more detail. But why don't we do a quick intro and tell us what you've been up to since you were on the podcast. Let's start with you, James. Uh, so since last time I was on the podcast, we've brought Bitcoin SPV to several more chains. So we're now available in Solidity, Golang, and ECMAScript, and we have an upcoming Rust implementation with Wasm bindings. We finally announced TBTC that we've been working on for almost a year now with Georgios and other people. And uh, TBTC is the first project of our new trade group, Crosschain Group, which aims to work on applications across multiple chains. Who are we? Well, we is uh, Suma, Keep, and a few other companies will probably be joining very shortly. Very cool. Tarun, what's new with you? Yeah, uh, we at Gauntlet have been kind of growing and uh, moving towards basically doing a lot more financial simulation for Ethereum smart contracts. Um, a little less on the proof-of-stake side, I think there's been the there's kind of a little less demand on the kind of pure financial modeling side right now because right now everyone's focusing on engineering 
Um, but in the DeFi world, I think a lot of these contracts that have got a lot of liquidity, like Compound and Uniswap, uh, are starting to try to attract more sophisticated uh, institutional investors, and that they're kind of they're really needing stress tests and things of that nature. So been focusing on that, and have been thinking about a lot of new financial attacks on proof-of-stake currencies. Oh, cool. Lastly, Georgios, I want you to introduce yourself. This is the first time you're on the Zero Knowledge podcast. So why don't you tell people who you are, what you're doing? Uh, thank you for having me, Anna. So my name is Georgios. Currently, I'm an independent consultant and researcher focused on uh, Layer 2 scalability solutions and interoperability solutions, always with security in mind first. Most of my work has been on the plasma side of things. Lately, I've been working more and more on the roll-up constructions, like primarily the optimistic roll-up technique. And uh, lately, I've been spending time with James on TBTC, which is an amazing protocol that you should all check. And uh, I've also been uh, spending a lot of my time working on the Interledger protocol, which is a protocol for interoperability that is agnostic with respect to the ledger, the settlement layer that you're using. Neat. And it's and like so you mentioned roll up here, but I, I think of you very much as like also existing in the zero knowledge community. I try to keep up. <laughs> cool. All right. So now we're here on the last day of DevCon. Uh, we're in Osaka. That's where it was this year. I want to hear from all of you what your thoughts were. And I think maybe just start, let's just do like an overall. What was your overall thoughts of DevCon 5 here in Osaka? I think uh, something I find kind of interesting is that other large public blockchains were the biggest sponsors this year. And there were a lot of other layer ones presenting at DevCon. And I kind of got the feeling that the gaga days of late 2017 and early 2018 where people thought you could bootstrap a new community for each and every one of these many layer one uh chains has turned into wow there's the social proof you need from the theorem community if you're going to expand and we saw things like ava you know supporting eth we saw well a somewhat confusing uh, launch of Open Libra, <laughs> um, and you know it was interesting to watch the the mix of uh, of layer ones, other layer ones. The only other comment I'll add is it did seem a little weird that they got main stage. Uh, uh, these other layer ones, other like Ethereum competitors, were on the main stage, but people working on Ethereum projects were in kind of off in different rooms, and it was. I feel like. It seemed a little weird to me. A lot of my DevCon experience focused around ETH2. Um, there were a lot of workshops and research breakouts and discussions around it. I gave a presentation on cross-chart communication. Um, you know, Generally, the people working on ETH2 seem extremely confident about it, while the people who aren't working on it are uh, generally more skeptical of it. Um, so I think that we're seeing many different implementation strategies for ETH2. Uh, we're seeing them try to bake rollups into the shards themselves via execution environments. Uh, we're seeing a lot of like very high-level details of the later phases of ETH2 change very rapidly 
And I think it's perfectly reasonable to have uh, uncertainty and healthy skepticism of it. So that's kind of been what DevCon's been about for me, is trying to figure out where ETH2 is going. So for me, instead of being about where ETH2 is going, it's where Layer 2 is going, because we saw like the result of a very big effort, the state channels initiative, where like eight different projects merged and standardized on a specific way of like talking to each other uh, on the protocol layer, on the like networking layer, and so on. But uh, currently, like the design space is like changing in the sense that everybody, literally everybody, is going is wants to do the rollup thing. And um, right now, everyone's trying to figure out what's the optimal trade-off uh, space because currently, like the rollup seems to be the layer one of layer twos. You have the layer one, the the public blockchain that you're using. You have the rollup, which you just dump data on, and then you will be able to perhaps like uh, build plasma on top or channels on top, and so on. So a lot of my time is figuring out, is spent fi- trying to figure out like what will the layer two stack look in the end? Will it be rollup? Will it be layer one on top of it, rollup on top of it, plasma on top of it, channels on top of it, interledger maybe like for everything speaking to each other? How many layers is that? We've we're way past layer two. Yes. Uh, also, every time someone says roll up, I can only think of fruit roll ups. So actually, to that point, one thing that I think is funny is the word roll up in the last two months has dramatically grown in scope. If you look at say E three search or Telegram or anywhere where people are talking about this stuff, to the point that the word means almost anything you can you can imagine that has a data availability problem. Um, but there's a zero-knowledge roll-up, there's an optimistic roll-up, and they have very different security and performance guarantees, and yet people kind of, you know, if you go to some of these talks, people will say roll-up, 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 but they don't, like, specify which one. Is, it, like, is it sort of replacing plasma? Or, like, is it, it like, what, where where is roll-up exactly? Is that, because to me it's, it's, you know, about sort of, like, an off-chain or side-chain then being, like, brought back on. So the difference between the roll-up, which is exactly the same, literally exactly the same technique as the one that's going to be used for execution environments, is that instead of you're just dumping raw data somewhere, instead of doing uh, putting everything off-chain, it's an on-chain data protocol with off-chain execution. The optimistic roll-up uses fraud proofs. The ZK roll-up uses validity proofs. The data that you put on chain is different in one case and in the other. And uh, the rollup, what it solves, it doesn't solve the data availability problem, but it kind of like works around it by saying that we will only advance state if the data is put somewhere that we can all verify where it is. And by solving the data availability problem, quote unquote, you can have like arbitrary state transitions happen while in plasma where the data availability problem still exists you're very much limited into what you can do in order to maintain safety of course data availability is very expensive um you can think of it as one of the primary problems that public blockchains solve um and uh that's why any kind of roll-up only gets you a small constant factor improvement in throughput one other thing, I guess, about rollups is the design space is still quite large in terms of there's a trade-off of time for safety. It's like 
and compute. There's sort of like the three axes, and I really don't like these trilemmas. So I'm going to just say there's three <laughs> three independent, it, three somewhat dependent coordinates. Can we call it Trune's triangle? <laughs> I prefer a simplex because that's you know this is a simplex. <laughs> And you can generalize that to more than three parameters. But uh, the, I, I, I think like those trade-offs are going to be very important to which ones get adopted and used. And I think you're seeing a lot of experiments that are engineering-driven in the roll-up space versus purely theoretically-driven, like in other parts of the zero-knowledge world. So I, I'm pretty, well, optimistic about that. Okay. <laughs> We can totally come back to these topics, but before that, I want to hear a little bit more about what was your favorite talk? Like, I really liked a talk um, on stablecoins, uh, which the name of the talk was Deleveraging Spirals Causing Instability of uh, Stablecoins, um, which I found to be very interesting because they actually do modeling and uh, like science, which we're missing a bit in the industry for, which is like very much into like Tarun's uh, expertise. Like actual modeling on which shows how certain actions of uh, actors can affect um, like the results in the DeFi, can affect the DeFi ecosystem. While currently everyone's like just putting money in the DeFi ecosystem, and we don't know what's going to happen when everything blows up. Actually, Tarun, what do you think about like? Are you you must be paying a lot of attention to this? Did yeah. you did you see that talk too? Uh, I've actually seen uh, Aria give that talk in 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 New York. Um, but I uh, I think there's a lot of these there are a lot of these types of financial attacks um, that people are really worried about as the total contract values go up. You know I think I think getting from the hundred million dollars in a contract to a billion dollars in a contract scaling jump uh, is going to take a lot more um, analysis of both these contracts and kind of these weird liquidation events that look similar to a lot of things from the financial crisis, but sped up. The deleveraging, the interesting thing is there was recently a day where ETH uh, had this like lar really large price drop, and a lot of the services that are supposed to close your CDP for you uh, when, uh, basically, like when, when you're, before you get liquidated, uh, they actually couldn't get, get enough block space um, to actually do the operation of closing your CDP for you. And that's the closest we've actually come. And the interesting thing is there's just enough competition for block space and there's not so much block space that it's actually very hard to execute this type of attack. But in a world where there's actually more throughput and scalability, it becomes way easier to execute this type of attack. So, um, you know, I, I think I spent a bunch of time talking with people about why we haven't seen some of these live. And uh, it's, it's, it's actually there's kind of this the limited block space kind of helps you in some ways so i guess i would add one other thing which is that i think there's going to be multiple fronts under which scalability is, is changing within the space one is financial scalability like can we really support more than x uh dollar equivalent locked into a contract that interacts with the actual transaction scalability and we're going to see a lot more of these interactions leading to sort of malicious, but very interesting to think about attacks and events. So to rephrase what you said, you mean that currently these attacks are not successful because an attacker is not like fast enough, can, cannot like get his transaction in fast enough. But if we get, you know, if we had like a Uniswap run over channels, for example, 
and where the attacker could do an instant like a state update, this could have been like much more dangerous. Yes. One other thing, actually, speaking of the other proof of stake networks, um, I think you're starting to see a lot of them trying to build in lending and stablecoin primitives directly into the base consensus layer. So, you know, I think the most famous example is Cello, who you've had on the, the show pretty recently. But I think even the other proof of stake layer one projects that I talked to, a lot of them want to find ways for validators to actually make income streams that aren't just keeping up with inflation. Um, and some of those income streams involve letting you lend against or borrow against your, your locked stake token, kind of the same way you borrow against your ETH in Maker. Um, and I've, I've been hearing a lot of very interesting, crazy ideas because I think people are starting to realize it's going to be hard for validators uh, to make money if they are just keeping up with inflation and taking an ever-shrinking pie of the basis point spread on that. Uh, you know, there are some other revenue streams that are available to validators. Uh, we call it minor extractable value. And generally, it's executing the kinds of attacks that we were talking about earlier. Um, validators are, and miners are in a privileged position to execute any kind of attack they want for no gas instantly because they make the blocks. For sure. And I think the roll-up stuff will change the cost, the price, you know, the sort of cost plus, as, as we said with Uniswap. But are you saying, like, another way that validators can make money is just to corrupt the system <laughs> sounds horrible they're not corrupting the system they're performing valid actions which uh, abuse badly designed mechanisms code is law yes speaking of uh m my favorite talk actually it was it was definitely phil diane's talk on um free will and it was something about how do you quantify extractable value in a smart contract and like what what's what are the formalisms to bound say like the total amount of value that any single validator can extract by basically having a bribing contract or making cartels or different types of behaviors. And um, I think that we're going to see a, a lot more of that in the proof of stake world. And in, in proof of work, it's actually really hard to, because the actual asset that is earning you, is paying for sort of fees is separate from the way of generating it by burning energy. You don't have a lot of these kind of uh, extractable events. There, there's a much smaller surface area. Um, and the other aspect is that uh, proof of work miners tend to have more avenues of optimization than stakers do. Um, so, proof of work, your primary expense is electricity, and you can always search for cheaper electricity and hardware, and you can always search for better manufacturing processes. Uh, you are likely to save more money doing that than you would by pursuing minor extractable value in many cases. I want to uh, shill for James because you know he he doesn't want to shill his own uh, article, but he Hasu and Brandon Brandon Curtis from Radar uh, wrote wrote a pretty cool article on this trying to quantify minor extractable value for proof of work mm -hmm. chains. Um, that definitely worth reading. Uh, it's been in the works for months and months, and we've rewritten it so many times, and I'm super excited. It's finally out the door. It just came out yesterday, I think. It's hard to tell with time zones. 
Um, Hasu deserves most of the credit. It's his model. Um, Brendan and I provided input and review mostly. But uh, but going back to the derivatives idea, are, are these protocols actually, they're building it into it? And it's not, it's not like you're doing wrapped. So basically like on, in Cosmos where you have a lot of tokens already staked, I've heard proposals, I don't know if this is actually live, where they'd actually create like wrapped tokens on another chain so it's like promises it's like um ious on what's been staked but, or something but like to that. be fair if you use MakerDAO or use compound you are sort of have the same thing because you convert your asset into the wrapped version of that asset um the difference is that the next generation smart contract platforms are a lot of them are going to have the the staking uh mechanism as a smart contract so right now the actual code that checks, hey, you transferred X Ethereum, does it meet all the requirements through all the signatures? Are they valid? Is this account allowed to transfer to this account, more or less? That's all done in the client code, separate from the smart contract side. But implementing staking, like the rules of staking in the smart contract makes it extremely easy to generate the derivatives in the same smart contract or in another smart contract. Are, are you talking about kind of the tokens that decided to stay on Ethereum then? Is these like the ERC-20 type protocols? Like where it's like it still lives on Ethereum or are these also like the, the layer one new, completely new protocols? They have all of their validation being done through smart contracts? The rules of validation are done through smart contracts. So for instance, if I want to set the monetary policy of there's an inflation rate of this amount, that's just executed in a smart contract that's, that computes what the current block reward is. And then when a validator is chosen by, it, say, a VRF, uh, they, they, the VRF is executed as a smart contract, too, uh, that chooses a random address and then gives them the block reward. Uh, generally speaking, newer proof-of-stake systems have much less of a division between contracts and consensus. Do you think that's a fair description? Yeah, the, I think the idea is to make consensus a first-class object so that it's implemented as a smart contract. And and, and I think, uh, you know, Facebook in particular with Move, I think one of the cool things about the language is that they force the smart contract developers to think about Move-only semantics. So Ethereum is scarce, and the scarce object can't be copied. It needs to be movable only. Um making that very apparent to the to a developer who's writing a, a dap or a, a smart contract um that having that as a first class object makes it much easier to implement the other client code just as a smart contract itself can you just really quickly give me a couple examples of protocols that are coming out that have that construction that you just mentioned where it's very very close Zello, facebook solana Probably ETH2. I actually have no clue. Well, it's very hard to say anything about ETH2 beyond phase zero. The original idea on ETH2 was that Casper would be, not before it was called ETH2, uh, was that Casper FFG would have been a smart contract. On ETH1. Yes. Yeah. So this idea has been around for a while. It's just that now we're seeing like people actually like de- start to deploy it. Yep. Uh, so going back to staking derivatives a little bit, the main thing to know about them is that they're literally unpreventable. You can't actually force someone to lock up an asset because I can always make a side bet with someone else. I can always go to Georgios and ask for liquidity on my locked up asset. 
The question is how difficult it is to do that and how much like slippage or premium I will pay in order to get liquidity. You can't prevent people from trading things they own. Uh, so we're kind of seeing some chains try out the Netflix model of staking derivatives, where instead of having these off-chain pirate derivatives that are freely traded, um, some chains are trying to provide an you know, approved, okayed ecosystem for staking derivatives on-chain so that they don't have weird side markets interfering with their consensus process. One of the ideas is that it'll just be so much easier to use the approved market that undesirable from a consensus security perspective instruments will be less common. And, and uh, I would add one other thing, which is that they're designed with uh, the idea of the cost of putting an Oracle or some other way of getting an external price feed into the underlying network has to be a lot more expensive than the on-chain version. So you basically try to adjust the economics of these instruments, both at the transaction fee level and at like kind of turnover level uh, to kind of make it too expensive to have to interact with like an off-chain centralized exchange. This is cool. Uh, a concrete example of this happening in the past is uh, Tezzy's were traded on multiple different venues long before Tezos launched. The same thing was happening also for ICO tokens. Yep. People uh, were buying tokens via smart contracts. Let's say I have like XYZ ICO. I would send my Ether to my smart contract. The smart contract would, would check how many tokens I would get from the ICO. It would like mint like this many coins at that smart contract, which were like lit and then this would be one to one redeemable for the um, tokens from the ICO crowd sale contract once they were liquid. Right. And so because anybody can offer this and multiple major exchanges have done so in the past, we should really expect to see ETH2 staking derivatives available on the open market long before ETH2 has smart contracts or even transfers of assets. What would be the relationship between them? Do well, you think? Uh, because you can always buy one staked ETH2 for one Ether, there must be a price cap. You know, It can't be worth more than one Ether, uh, which implies that ETH2 will be worth less than Ether um, by you know, whatever we value the staking revenue at. If there is a way to go back from ETH2 to ETH1, would that change the price relation versus if it was only a one-way peg? Uh, yes, definitely. Yeah, one one other way of thinking about this is if you make... Imagine you have two different prices in transaction fees for going from ETH1 to ETH2, like one Ether to one Beacon ETH, and a price going from one Beacon ETH to one Ether, and they're two separate prices. You can think of the case where what's happening in phase zero looks like having one of the prices be infinite and the other one zero. Um, but in reality, a smooth transition to this would basically be to make it very asymmetric. So make it cost in transaction fees, you know, 100x what it costs for one direction relative to the other, and then slowly bring that ratio down until it hits parity. Um, that would be a way to kind of smoothly go from having this price delta until you get it to converge right when you kind of are launching further phases. 
And it's worth noting that it will converge as ETH2 becomes more tightly integrated with ETH1, and you have two-way asset transfers and things like that. It's just likely to be very messy based on you know what we know about the market dynamics right now. So I, I want to actually give a little bit of historical context to the uh, this idea of having staking derivatives or like the sort of this theorem we're sort of sketching out that's claiming you must have derivatives the moment you have a capital asset that you're trying to make scarce versus like a physical asset like energy that is naturally scarce and you don't have to sort of force scarcity on it. So in in kind of the normal uh, financial world, an interesting fact about U.S. uh reserves there's much less money that's actually cash floating in the u.s supply than there is other types of money supply so most u.s companies don't hold cash they actually have very little cash and one of the reasons that this has flipped since the financial crisis is that in during the financial crisis there were enough banks that failed and companies that had their money at banks without deposit insurance so uh, in the U.S., um, every bank has to offer you deposit insurance up to $250,000. But for companies which have bigger cash flows or have more cash sitting around, uh, they don't really, that doesn't protect them enough. They might have millions of dollars in a bank account. So what happened was after that failure, in order to sort of replicate uh, deposit insurance, um, this there a market called the repurchase agreement market kind of grew a lot and what what how the repurchase agreement market works is actually very similar to a lot of um, these semi-collateralized derivatives in crypto so i'll give you kind of like the high level version of this so instead of having cash you go and buy bonds and bonds are considered u.s treasuries are considered the most cash-like asset so you hold your cat, so you're Apple. You get $100 million today. You go buy $100 million of treasuries. And let's say tomorrow you have to build a new factory um, and you need to get $100 million in cash to pay Foxconn or something. Then what you have to do is you basically lend your bonds out for cash and then you go and buy the factory. And then because you're Apple and you have cash flow, your lenders trust you to pay it back in like a week once, you know, I don't know, you sold some more iPhones. And this system looks very similar to a lot of the on-chain lending platforms. It's just that the pricing mechanism is very different. I think that just what you just described is very similar to what was being done with CDI and RDI and all these like DAI derivatives. But like in a very short, this is like, the iterations are incredibly fast, what you're describing. Like, you say it like it was far in the past. This was like six months ago. 75% of U.S. dollars that exist in bank databases are in the repurchase agreement market. So very little of the real of dollars that are outstanding in the world actually are not held in bonds. That's a lot of dollars. Given that I have you three here, one of the topics that I'd really like to talk about is sort of the state of things. Since we're just wrapping up DevCon, we can talk about the state of Ethereum. What's happening in Ethereum right now? In 2017, there was a very distinct thing happening, culture, moment, whatever. 2018 also had this sort of like, it was crypto winter, but there's a lot of 
positivity. There was a lot of excitement. There was a lot of building. People seemed pretty pumped. How did they feel this year? What what was the sort of sentiment this year? I think that uh, people are sobering up right now. It's no longer a situation where um, like you raise a lot of money with just a white paper. You need to have a product and you need to find some product market fit if this thing exists in this industry beyond um, um, like regulatory arbitrage and uh, uh, securities fraud. <laughs> We're starting like uh, finally that like uh, scalability is like coming soon, trademark, um, in the sense that like things are starting to like get built around the scalable protocols. DeFi is definitely like the narrative that uh, will stick around. And uh, I'm looking forward like, to seeing how the competitors will actually like, react to this because the competitors of Ethereum are like very... Ethereum accepts everybody. Like, uh, that's why the Ethereum culture is like, very well known for, that like, come as you are, like, we're going to take you in. Like, and as Darun said earlier, we saw that with the sponsors and the main stage talks by competitors. However, my what I'm, I haven't figured out yet is like, what will the competitors do? Uh, I would expect they'd copy any portion of the DeFi ecosystem that finds product market fit. Um, but do you guys think anything in DeFi has product market fit yet? I think the interesting thing is that, um, at least coming from the, the New York side of things, I'd I do hear institutions and more traditional hedge funds as opposed to kind of crypto native funds being interested in a lot of the on-chain lending products um, more as just a way to diversify some of their their lending risk, ironically, in some ways. Um, I think the thing that has the best product market fit, and this is, I guess, maybe somewhat controversial, is Tether, um, which is the ultimate tool of traders and regulatory arbitrage the other thing is the fiat backed stable coins have not had any blacklisting so if you go and look at usdc the blacklist function has never been called (laughs) that's why it's kind of funny that it's getting lent on compound so you can basically get a kyc dollar lend it on compound to someone who's not kyc'd and kind of get around the system so a lot of regulatory arbitrage stuff is working really well there's also a lot of kind of uh, india and china focused um companies uh that are trying to be like betterment or wealth front so you know you put in some fiat and they help you get into crypto and then they go and lend and get you some yield um you know i think there's some of this like personal finance type of stuff that seems to actually be the narrative seems to be striking a tone with people who are very different than the crypto native users so that's just you know my at least from the DeFi perspective what i want to talk about like to you james and you tarun is um currently i think that um there is for me at least there's a big question how do you build a business that makes money in this industry making money and they have like the following like constraints no token your business does not reduce to being an exchange. So onboarding of boarding platforms are exchanges. Uniswap, you could argue, like has like some uh, exchange-like structure. How do you generate revenue without margins going to zero fast and uh, without like uh, other than like consulting? Not VC revenue, like 
I have customers that use the product. The product makes money. Uh, you know, it hasn't escaped my notice that all three of us work in you know services to other projects, essentially. Uh, Sumo tends to work with layer one chains, building interoperability solutions. Uh, Tarun at Gauntlet tends to work on you know agent analysis for other projects, proof of stake and DeFi systems. Georgios, I know you've been involved as a consultant in a number of research on projects on layer one and layer two. So like we've all kind of answered that question the same way is uh, we're providing you know like non-recurring engineering work for other teams and those other teams are all vc funded or token funded which usually means vc funded for now we're all just trying to make revenue where we can and i think we're all really searching for recurring revenue something that's a sustainable product and so uh, based on where all our you know, like businesses are at here, I don't know that you're going to get a solid answer for how to build that. We're all still searching, I think. And I will say, I guess the, the businesses that I think staking has helped launch will and seem quite unbundled right now. So node operation services like Bison Trails, who was on, uh, on the podcast earlier, custodians, um, especially as people seemingly want these MPC style custody instead of strictly multi-sig um, and uh, broker dealers. Uh, so people who actually can provide sizable liquidity for holders. I think you're going to see those three businesses integrate. Um, it's, you know, from a traditional financial view, those services are all sold by one vendor. So like if you're a hedge fund, you don't find a custodian who's separate from your prime broker, who's separate from the person who's getting your bond coupons for you. They're all the same and it's the same service. And I think someone will find that aggregation at that layer. That's like slight in my mind, slightly adjacent to exchanges. It's, it's, it's exchange plus plus. Uh, do you think existing exchanges are looking for that aggregation? I think that you can tell by their moves. They're all are moving into staking. They're all operating nodes. I think they're going to sell developer uh, node operation like Infura or Alchemy. Um, I think you're definitely seeing that uh, happen, which is also going to just shrink the margins. But at least there's like a minimum when you have a physical like hardware thing <laughs> that you can kind of go to. I'm trying to figure out how can we grow the pie rather than redistribute wealth. I actually have a question. I'm responding to your question with a question. But, you know, I, I vaguely remember something called an NFT that was supposed to be the pie-growing universe uh, for, like, online items, digital items. What what happened to that narrative? It kind oh, of... I thought kind of, I thought ERC-20s were supposed to be the pie-growing thing. Wait, wasn't, uh, like, rich state on a chain supposed to be the pie-growing thing? And now DeFi is supposed to be the pie-growing thing, and I guess we've gone through a lot of things that haven't grown the pie that have always been supposed to be that thing. So I guess the answer to that question is, you guys don't know the answer to that question. It's a thought experiment. <laughs> On that level, I actually want to I, I wanna talk about funding. So I think your question was very much like, how does a business make revenue? But I think there are other ways that com companies, projects are funding themselves. Sometimes they've actually added funding directly into the protocol itself. 
founder rewards, block rewards. You have companies that have developed protocol and they're probably also going to move into staking and validation. If you look at like the Cosmos team and who the validators are in Cosmos, they've at least found ways to maintain their own livelihood through that. Yeah, I'm wondering what what are your thoughts on all of these kind of like new ways of funding? I'm generally skeptical of anything built into the protocol uh, because it uh, funds things. It funds like people and people have control of those funds without the obligation to provide any value in exchange for them. Um, this is why you know, like I am a fan of revenue focused businesses is because if people are buying your product, that means you're providing value. Uh, you take something that is very objective, like the protocol rewards currently, for example, in proof of work, like a block gets mined, the rewards go somewhere. If you add like a way for like a dev funds like that uh, get distributed based on some multisig, then you took something that was perfectly objective and you made it subjective based on that multisig. And uh, my whole idea for joining this industry was that I can have like something I can observe like completely objectively, like work is objective and uh, proof of work is objective. So like I'd, I want to avoid any form of subjectivity built, baked in the protocol. Uh, tying into that a little bit, the whole like thesis of blockchains is that incentives create results uh, and that if there is a protocol sponsored you know, like stream of money being given out, that people will compete to get it. And so uh, this is why I don't really understand the push towards governance and you know like protocol issued funds is if there is money being given out, people will compete to get it. One um, thing I will say about that that is um is kind of weird in a lot of these new next generation networks is that there's not a, the homogeneity in node types and rewards as there is in proof of work. Um, in a lot of staking networks, there are many different types of validators. So some validators are actually executing the state transitions. Some validators might get rewarded for providing data availability. Some, especially in the zero-knowledge world, will get rewarded for running proof generation, like in, in Coda, right? And now you have an, a multi-agent problem where you have to de design the reward structure such that you have a revenue split that everyone is happy with. And you now get back to this founder's reward problem with wow. this multiple node types. Um, so, I didn't think about it that way. That's That's interesting that, like... Because, I mean, the decision, but I guess in this case, the decision making of the breakdown would have to happen or would likely happen before the launch. Or do you imagine it actually being altered after launch has happened? And then there's some small group that can make those decisions. How much money is there to make by altering it after the launch has happened? Um, I think you're going to see both of them. I think even in um, the more per more permissioned blockchains. I suspect we will also see some some of these revenue sharing agreements change quite dramatically, as we've observed certainly with Libra uh, and the change to the association members. Wow, I didn't. I hadn't thought about that. I hadn't thought about like the that connection between the the sort of the issue with the subjectivity of block rewards and the distribution of that with. This, these emerging protocols and all the different roles that validators and the various types of validators will take. 
since I have you here, and this is actually going to be episode 99 of the podcast, which is kind of cool, I really wanted to talk about the zero knowledge space. I feel like you've at least all three of you have been observing it or acting in it, working with it. There's a lot going on right now. So um, there has been a so-called Cambrian explosion of schemes in 2019, we called it Snarktember, Snarktober. Like, uh, we'll see if we'll have Snark, Snark November, I guess. Snarkember? Um, snark, uh, I don't know. Um, currently, we've been using we've been using a protocol that has cryptography, like Bitcoin and Ethereum. All use cryptography that's been well known for more than 20 years. Like, even well standardized, with wide support, very well explored, everything. All the new protocols that are being released, yes, they might have amazing properties. Yes, they might get you constant prover time, constant verifier, like low memory, no trusted setup or continued, like a never-ending setup. However, you're using cryptography from 2019 that only 30 or even less people have uh, read, let alone um, understand. Let alone understanding and being able to evaluate the proofs it's very like uh, far from each other. So I may be able to read the paper and kind of get the gist of it and explain it to somebody. But me evaluating the security proofs of the paper uh, is a completely different level. And it's usually the authors that are going to be able to do that only and like the, maybe their academic uh, reviewers in, the, in some peer-reviewed conference. The um, situation is that when these protocols get um, coded, you can have, you have another uh, like problem because you have the spec and you ha- you have the protocol you have the spec and you have the implementation each time you move from one to the other you reduce like there's even fewer people that can do it so like the people mm-hmm. that can currently implement and deploy these protocols are very few and um, like I would still like be very very careful with uh, what I'm going to be using from all of this and let me take a moment to say that at the zk summit. Which is coming up. And in two weeks, I will be doing a presentation on uh, a map of um, the zero-knowledge proving systems that like, uh, are being used today with the latest uh, protocols which were released. Um, and the title is going to be Growth 16 is not dead, because Growth 16 is like one of the like, best protocols that we have to date. It works very well. It's been battle-tested to a good extent. And... Uh, I think that like we should be a bit more conservative than mm. rather than like trying to reinvent new stuff. At the same time, like why don't we give a little bit of context for the listeners? Like, what kind of stuff is actually coming out? What's exciting? Like, I, I think what you've just described there is like this is the issue with a lot coming out. But what what is it like? What is coming out? Snarks are like the most widely known of these, and there are a few different snark constructions dating back to 2013 or so. Um, maybe even a little earlier than that. 20, 2012, 2012 quadratic arithmetic programs compilation gentry. Thanks. Ninety eighty eight Goldwasser. What are you talking about? Oh, sure, sure, sure. But I, I mean, the first more practical thing was really the gentry paper. Man, I hate being on podcasts with people who know more than me. So they only go back like seven years in practice, right? Uh, and the first ones were incredibly inefficient. Uh, so, for example, when Zcash launched, their Snark prover took uh, like minutes to run. 
Um, and the verifier was much more efficient, but still is computationally very expensive. Uh, snarks have an additional downside, which is they need a trusted setup. So there has to be some trusted group of people that go through a process and throw away the toxic waste and do the whole thing. Um, what we're seeing now is many, many different systems that improve on specific aspects. Uh, so like Groth 16 is just almost a strictly better version or a strictly better construction of the same kinds of proofs we saw in 2012. But then you get into things like Sonic and Supersonic and Plonk and all of these other names that I'm going to forget. Each of them are improving some specific aspect of it. Uh, maybe making the trusted setup reusable for many different proofs. Uh, maybe trying to remove the trusted setup. Uh, maybe trying to have more efficient provers. Um, we're seeing kind of exploration of some trade-off space uh, that we don't understand very well yet. Um, we don't know what is possible and how efficient or small or uh, pretty we can make these. So we're trying a lot of things and seeing what has useful applications. I've noticed in the like as as groups are trying to implement what's coming out, what is actually happening is groups that aren't deep in the research see so much flurry of activity. They're like, this is exciting. But we're going to wait until the dust settles before we start really deploying our engineering team, our engineering efforts towards these things. Because what if a brand new like underlying construction comes out in the next month or two, which is very possible, and it changes a lot of it? Uh, that's at least what I've been hearing from some of the teams, which is, it's kind of like the, the other side, it's the double-edged sword, right? Or, the, it's or what the- if an attack gets re- found because the proofs in the paper were wrong. I, I will say one other thing, um, especially in this, uh, the style of proof that's used for a lot of these constructions, is that uh, they're not quite perfectly comparable assumptions between the different models. And actually knowing, you know, there's the, there's a sort of like performance versus time versus security versus a few other things, simplex, trade-off simplex. Triangle? Quadrangle? <laughs> That's why, that's why it's a simplex. It has a berry center in all dimensions. Uh, it's, it's, uh, but the, there's basically, we're also, we're also forgetting that we're drawing all these trade-offs on the same surface, but there's actually different security assumptions in a lot of these proofs, and a lot of them use different types of reductions. And so it's not just reading a single paper, and I think Georgius was sort of, getting at this it's like you need to know the whole dependency graph of all the papers beforehand and understand when a certain assumption was relaxed or changed and that knowing that whole body of knowledge ends up being really hard for a single like a single person at a company to really be the expert on right especially because this is an extremely complex field and the work is so new uh, in like ECDSA, we're typically using assumptions that are 20 years old, like discrete log problem stuff. Uh, there's Starks, which are based on hashes, and those are using assumptions that are like 40 years old and battle tested. Uh, a lot of like zero knowledge proofs coming out today are using knowledge of exponent assumptions, which are like five years old, really. Um, and we have new VDF stuff using class groups, which is maybe 10 years old. We're seeing a lot of cryptography introduced that 
is based on poorly understood assumptions or assumptions that haven't been tested in practice or relaxed versions of older assumptions. Um, it's extremely difficult for anyone who's not a full-time academic to keep up with. And yet we still try. I, I don't try all that hard. <laughs> I think, at least personally, I will say, I, there was a while when I was very um, excited by what I would call the the zero-knowledge porn that was coming out every week. And I really <laughs> I really enjoyed reading these papers and, and having discussions with people. But the 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 flood of the the Gilgamesh event, the Cambrian explosion, sort of has made it hard to even care anymore. It reminds me of Proof of Stake in 2016 and 17. You know, you kinda of had first you had Algorand and you had a couple you had Snow White from um, Raphael Paz uh, and Lane Shi. And you know, there was just after that, there was this flood of provable proof of stake protocol papers. And I remember reading them, and being like, "Oh, this is amazing!" Like, and then by the time I read the seventh one, I was like, "They're all actually basically the same, with like a very tiny little, you know, difference because they're all chasing after ICO money." And also, they're written some papers that I've read. They're like intentionally made very, very, very complex uh, because complexity sells. The sex sells of the cryptocurrency industry. Complexity sells. Uh, if you know, if you've met Zaki Munyan, you know that he likes to say that all other proof of stake systems are just tendermint with extra steps. The the infamous uh, theorem of uh, the tendermint reduction. Yes, I, I, I will say that I suspect once we actually have simpler proofs for a lot of the um, zero knowledge work that's coming out right now, um, we might be able to kind of connect this morass of different theories and assumptions and kind of get a good intuitive understanding. This oftentimes happens in mathematics where a difficult result is proved and it's proved in a really complicated way. And then someone finds a much simpler version. And at each level of simpler proof, you get much more intuition into why it works. Whereas the first really difficult thing was someone really straining and like kind of climbing Mount Everest for the first time, whereas each additional one is a better and better Sherpa guiding you up the mountain. That's nice. Well, I really want to say thank you to all three of you for joining me on this podcast on our 99th episode. Um, is there anything else that you want to talk about before we sign off? Yeah, I guess I had a question for basically everyone here, which is, you know, I think we've seen a lot of interest in using Starks and Snarks uh, for DEXs, but what are some other applications, you know, outside of consensus and DEXs that excite you, uh, especially with regard to the implementation? Because if you think about it, whichever application or layer or protocol implements this, uh, any of these prover verifier systems, they will be designing it around their organizational structure and like whatever their application actually is. And so it's interesting to think about how the code that gets written will reflect the first user who's writing it. Um, so like what, what are some of those uh, applications you're excited about? Um, I'm really interested in how we can use zero knowledge proofs in cross chain communication, um, which is what I work on all the time and what I'm excited about. Uh, so we've been talking a lot recently about this concept we call observability is uh what can a chain practically know? Um, and part of this is like, what is 
deterministic and publicly verifiable, but the other part of it is what is cheap to verify, cheap enough that you can put it in a consensus process. Um, and so zero-knowledge proofs have this great property that they're publicly verifiable, deterministic, and a lot of them have uh, constant time verification, so they can be extremely cheap to verify. And we can verify extremely large statements about reality and other systems in a very small amount of uh, time cost. Uh, so that might mean CODA's recursive snark structure making statements about the entire history of their chain and evaluating that from within some other chain's uh, smart contract or consensus process. I'm a fan of dark pools, but nobody wants to talk about it because it might be illegal to do. But I'm a big fan of uh, the design, and I think that once zero-knowledge proofs uh, like get deployed more, we will see like like some kind of Uniswap with a built-in dark pool to be more robust to like when the market participant wants to add a bunch of liquidity to it, so that like nobody can see that the market moved. Yeah, that that is something I would like to see at some point. Yeah, I mean, I think I'm I'm quite interested in the interoperability use case for zero knowledge proofs. There's like I've done a workshop where we with Chris Goes from Cosmos where we actually went through like all these different ways that zero knowledge type constructions can be used in interoperability, not only as light clients, but like in all these different ways. It was really cool. And then I mean the the topic that I wanted to talk about here at DevCon was about the idea of privacy and transparency and this balance that can be achieved through zero knowledge proofs. And that kind of takes the form of things like compliance or, you know, interactions with some regulators, a very unpopular topic in the, in some circles, but I think that zero knowledge proofs in that context could be very, very interesting. That's a, that's a very real world example that I'm using here, but thanks for that question. Should I, how about you? Do you have anything? Um, I guess I'm in the 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 uh, frame of Georgios. Um, maybe not quite dark pools, but some other kind of liquidity provision without leaking identity. Because in the normal markets, that happens via speed, not via brains. And so it's kind of interesting to think about like what happens when you flip that dynamic. Like, what does trading look like? Um, but again, the, it doesn't feel like that's like a growing the pie use case. Just <laughs> You know, to, yeah. to go back to earlier. <laughs> it's just cool. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay. So, listen, thanks again. This has been really cool to have this conversation with the three of you. I hope you'll, I hope each of you will come back on the podcast. Maybe I can also get you guys all back at the same time. Let's try this again. Thank you very much for having us, Anna. Tyrone and James are among like the people I most respect in this industry. So, this was very nice and very insightful to me. Yeah, thanks for having us, and congratulations on 99. You're, uh, you know, you're almost at a big milestone. Um, I'm excited to see what you do for that episode. Well, Frederick uh, will definitely be on that one. <laughs> I'm sorry that Frederick isn't here in, in Osaka with us. Thanks for having us, Anna. This has been really fun. It's nice to get a like, room full of friends together and talk about the state of things and where we think they're going. I'm excited about it still. See you next year. All right. And to our listeners, thanks for listening. <laughs> <laughs>